This episode is supported by Damsel in Defense, equipping women with personal protection, and also by Lumi Deodorant, the number one all-natural deodorant. This episode also gets a shout-out to our sister podcast in the Ragtag Network, Save Me an Aisle Seat, who recently covered the musical version of this topic. So, if you're interested in putting theft, murder, and mayhem, and inaccurate history to music, you should definitely check this out. The links to all these things and more can be found in the show notes. Their story, though romanticized on the silver screen, in the magazines, and splashed across every front page of every newspaper in the era, it was hardly a glamorous one. Even though movies, novels, and even musicals have come from their brief and spectacular short-lived outlaw life, the romanticized couple were real people and felt real emotions and came with real families. A love at first sight romance that began in 1930 developed into a crime spree beginning in the summer of 1932 and went until the spring of 1934. They created a story that left a trail of violence and terror in their wake as they crisscrossed the countryside in a series of stolen cars, robbing gas stations, village groceries, and the occasional bank, taking hostages for sport or to aid in their escape. But who were Bonnie and Clyde? Why is their story still so engrossing today? And what is fact, and what is fiction, to the story of Bonnie and Clyde? We'll be shedding some light on that very thing. I'd like to introduce you to the real Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The records of the FBI's investigation on the capture of Bonnie and Clyde have recently been made available to the public and it was interesting to see how the departments worked together in the time before the internet, fax machines, cell phones, and in some places, even telephones. Every single letter was documented, every single photograph, every single tip, sighting, possible sighting, everything was followed up. Every FBI agent who worked on the case had to write up reports regularly covering who they spoke to, when, and the result of the meeting, for every little lead and detail. I imagine that this file is pretty thick, and admittedly, I skimmed over a lot of the pages. However, much of the reports of the robberies and murders, you may be surprised to learn, were not done by the duo. In fact, at their high point, almost every type of criminal activity was pinned on them, whether they were in the area or not. Sensationalizing is not necessarily a 21st century thing. But while the FBI files were fascinating and I spent hours and hours poring over them, it didn't feel right basing my episode on Bonnie and Clyde on the hard, cold notes left by the Bureau. I wanted to get to know them. They were a media sensation, after all, 
that are still just as interesting today as they were almost 100 years ago, and it's the human condition that keeps us curious. Their biggest loves would be their undoing. It wasn't the love of money. It wasn't the love of things. It wasn't even the love of fame. It was the love we all dream of. True love. A passionate and undeniable love for each other and a committed love for their family. Clyde's older sister Nell would refute the newspapers and many of the reports of her brother until her last breath. So much latitude was taken with the life and times and crimes of the couple and their days as a gang that it became important to her to do what she could to set the record straight. There were many crimes that they were accused of that they didn't commit, and there were many crimes that they were never accused of that they take full blame for. And most of the family shied away from those. There's no point in arguing at this stage. But what mattered to Nell and the other family members was that they were real people too. People that even though they made bad choices, they had family that loved them. She would say, quote, Clyde continued coming home because he loved his people and because Bonnie cried to see her mother. I know this all sounds incongruous, but remember that even the worst criminals have families that they love. These families are human, and the criminals are also human and given to human emotions, sufferings, and longings, end quote. And so, leaving the FBI files behind, let's begin to know more about Bonnie and Clyde. The couple met one afternoon when Bonnie Parker, aged 18, was helping to take care of a friend who had broken her arm. Clyde Barrow, barely 20, was just as smitten as she was on that first meeting. Both had broken hearts behind them. Clyde had two serious relationships, and one of those was an engagement, and Bonnie, well, she was still married to her past relationship. She had dropped out of school and gotten married at 15, much to her mother's dismay, and after the honeymoon was oh, well, not even over, Rory Thornton decided he enjoyed burglary more than he did a wife that still needed to be near her mother. So he would leave and come back, leave and come back, her heart breaking every time. But finally, she had enough and she told him not to come back again. She was finished. And he didn't come back. That might have something to do with him getting caught and sent to prison, but I could be wrong. The point is, is he didn't come back. Clyde had already started down his petty theft criminal path, and I'm not excusing his behavior by any means, but you can almost see how he got swept into the criminal world due to his outside circumstances. I'm from the point of view that you can change your life at any given time, and it's all about the choices you make. But Clyde Barrow decided to float with the tide instead of swimming against it. His first offense was not returning a rented car on time. Granted, it was more than a few hours late, more like a few days. But he was attempting to win back the fiancé that left him by taking her mother to visit, he figured he could tag-team her into forgiving him whatever grievance she suffered, and all would be well. He was planning on a quick woo-and-win trip, but the mother wanted to stay a bit longer. And how could he argue with that? When the police showed up at the house to ask about the missing rental, Clyde got scared and took off. Literally. I don't think that helped his case with his fiancé either. Instead of making that one phone call to the rental company, he decided to run. 
His sister Nell, who was just a few years older than he, explained his behavior further. Quote, Clyde hated rows, and running away was easier than staying and trying to explain or taking his medicine. Clyde was to run away consistently the rest of his life. End quote. Then, adding to that, he was guilty by association. His brother Buck, who we'll talk about more later, got Clyde his second arrest. He happened to be in the car when Buck was pulled over for stealing turkeys. Clyde was not guilty, but his brother had been guilty of several thefts, so Clyde eventually gravitated toward the excuse of, who cares if it's true, they're going to blame me for it anyway. And then the popular, if I'm going to get blamed for it, I might as well do it, angle. Bonnie's mother, Emma Parker, recalled that first meeting, quote, I went over to see Bonnie and her friend about the second week of January, and here I saw Clyde Barrow for the first time. He was in the kitchen with a big cook apron on mixing hot chocolate, a drink of which he was very fond. I knew there was something between them the minute Bonnie introduced me to him. She was desperately afraid I wasn't going to like this Barrow boy, and she wanted me to like him above everything else, End quote. Clyde Barrow loved fast cars, any kind of gun, and driving fast. Bonnie, on the other hand, only loved Clyde. W.D. Jones, a member of the Barrow gang for more than eight months, who we'll also get to know better later, would say of Barrow, quote, Clyde never had no vice to indulge like robbers you read about nowadays. He was no dopehead. He never drank to excess. He didn't gamble. Clyde just wanted to stay alive and free and Bonnie just wanted to be with Clyde. He'd made the first wrong turn and couldn't get back, end quote. Clyde's family instantly fell in love with Bonnie, too. They would say, quote, Bonnie was an adorable little thing. Clyde always called her his blue-eyed baby or his blue-eyed girl, end quote. Or, quote, she had dimples that showed constantly when she talked, end quote. Nell would look back and recall Bonnie as, quote, she was so full of the joy of living, she seemed to dance over the ground instead of walking. She always had a comeback for any wisecrack. Her sense of humor was applied to herself as well as to the other fellow. She worked hard, lived at home, stayed in nights, and never ran around, and she simply adored and worshipped her mother. As I look back over the past, I realize that Bonnie's key crime was that she loved Clyde Barrow. End quote. It wasn't long after their romance began, but long enough to make it pretty serious. The law caught up with Clyde for burglary and took him away to the Dallas jail to await sentencing. According to her mother, quote, She screamed and cried, beat her hands on the walls, begged the officers not to take him, hung around Clyde's neck, did all the foolish, futile things a woman does under such circumstances. When they left, Bonnie stopped crying and just sat down like the end of the world had come. She was so pathetic and helpless looking, with tears rolling down her cheeks, end quote. If she wasn't visiting Clyde in jail, she was writing him volumes of letters, signing them, Just Your Baby, Bonnie. He was transferred to Waco, where he confessed to two burglaries and five car thefts. He did love his fast cars. He was given a total of 14 years, which he would be required to serve out at Eastham, which was a straight-up prison. Bonnie wasn't able to see Clyde while he was at Waco until her mother made arrangements for her to stay with Bonnie's cousin, Mary, who lived there. 
There, along with her cousin, Bonnie would be able to visit him until they moved him to the Texas State Penitentiary. Mary would accompany Bonnie to every visit, which she did faithfully daily, sometimes twice in a day if she could get away with it. In between visits, she was putting pen to paper. Here's an excerpt to give you an idea of her frame of mind while her beloved was in jail. It reads, quote, When you do get out, I want you to go to work, and for God's sake, don't get in any more trouble. I am almost worried to death about this. When you get clear and don't have to run, then we can have some fun. End quote. And that's only a few lines from the pages and pages of letters she wrote to him, all in the same vein that her mother kept. This takes away the theory that she was looking for trouble, or the adventure that comes with breaking the law, or was a gangster's mall in the making. If you looked deeper into her character, and I did for you, you're welcome, she didn't like any of this outlaw business and wanted nothing to do with it. Her mother would go on to say that she just wasn't built for it, and she would be a wreck every single time waiting to hear that Clyde was okay. But Bonnie's role in his life was about to change. She would alter the course of her own path to be intertwined with his until the very end. Her mother would say, quote, Unknown to the officers, Bonnie Parker, who had never been mixed up with crime or criminals before, staged Clyde Barrow's jailbreak for him with all the coolness and daring of an experienced hand, which shows what love will lead a woman to do, end quote. A cellmate of Barrow's sent Bonnie to his house for a gun, giving her specific directions of when to go and where the gun was to be hidden. Well, it wasn't where he said it was, but Bonnie was on a mission and tore the house apart looking for the small revolver. Her cousin watched from the car, not knowing what exactly was happening, until she, too, got involved. Her cousin Mary added, quote, I was never so scared in my whole life. My feet were like ice and my knees like water. I just knew the policemen were all around waiting to pounce on us. When I saw that she was determined, I started in to help, for it seemed the quickest way to get away from it. We found the hidden gun, and by the time we got back to Waco, I felt that everyone we passed knew we had a gun, and we were going to stage a jailbreak. Bonnie wasn't scared, though. She went up to see Clyde, and the jailer said she mustn't stay long. The jailer let her go up, and I sat there perspiring as if it were summertime. Finally, Bonnie came back downstairs. We left as quickly as we could, and neither of us had anything to say. We didn't sleep all night. At daybreak, Bonnie asked me to get a paper. There it was. The whole story. End quote. Side note, the two girls did take time to giggle about a newspaper article about the house being robbed and ransacked with no leads. It was the house they had gone to to find the gun. Clyde Barrow, Emery Abernathy, and William Turner had walked out of the Waco jail. Mary claimed that Bonnie could talk of nothing but Clyde. She said that Bonnie would claim, quote, He wasn't a bad boy, she said. He just hadn't had a chance. If he got out of this mess and safely away, she would get a divorce, go to him, and marry him. They would settle in some far-off place and everything would be all right. Clyde wasn't ever going to do anything to get in trouble again. End quote. Bonnie went back home to her mother to wait for word from Clyde. It came by way of a telegram that was sent from Nokomis, Illinois, and said that all was well. 
His sister Nell would recall, quote, If I had known, could I have changed him in any way? I don't think so. He was made the way he was, and nobody could have changed him except himself. The time was to come, however, when, because of Bonnie Parker, Clyde would have liked to have changed. But by then, it was too late. Forever and ever. End quote. The boy's freedom didn't last long as the trio was recaptured in Middleton, Ohio, and sent back to Waco. On April 21, 1930, Clyde Barrow was sent to Eastham Penitentiary. Later, he would write in one of his many letters to Bonnie, quote, Honey, you said you would do anything I wanted you to do. Well, I'll tell you what I want you to do. Just be a good girl and always love me. If you'll do those two things, that is all that is necessary except coming to see me, and that is the main thing right now. Honey, if I could just spend one week with you, I'd be ready to die, for I love you and I don't see how I can live without you. End quote. Clyde served two years in the state penitentiary and came out a different man. His views were tainted, and his skin was a little thicker, and his edge was a little sharper. He would tell his family some of the abuses he suffered while in prison, and some of them are what you think they are, and according to which resource you go by, he apparently got his revenge, and it would be considered his first and most brutal killing, but he was never named in this particular death, if it ever happened. Buckling under the other abuses of prison life, Clyde just knew that he wasn't going to make it 14 long years. And while he didn't know that his mother was pleading his case to get his sentence reduced, he took matters into his own hands, or rather, toes. He couldn't stand to go out to the cotton fields another day because he would get beaten for not being able to keep up with the others, so he asked a cellmate to cut off two of his toes. It technically worked. He was sent to the infirmary, but then, just a few days later, thanks to his mother, his release came through. He could have saved his toes. It was February 2, 1932, when Clyde Barrow became a free man. A free man with a limp, but a free man all the same. His sisters feared that he was going to get right back into the criminal life, so they urged him to find a good girl, get married, settle down. He responded with, quote, I had a good girl before I went away. I'm going to doll up now and go over there to see if Bonnie will still speak to me. Maybe not. No decent girl would, I suppose. End quote. He did. And she would. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net 
forward slash bones. Only a mother can appreciate my feelings when I walked into the Kaufman jail and saw my Bonnie behind bars. Emma Parker had thought her daughter had gone to Houston for a job. She certainly didn't think her little girl would be in jail for a burglary job. March 22, 1932, Bonnie, Clyde, and fellow jailmate Ralph Foltz attempted a robbery but were caught off guard before anything could come of it. They took off in a stolen car, but when it got stuck in the mud, they were forced to run across a field and try to escape. Bonnie had lost her slippers in the mud, so Clyde came along, scooped her up, and carried her until they came to a ditch. They could hear the bullets buzzing all around them and hitting the dirt as they ran. When the gunfire quieted down, Clyde carried Bonnie to an abandoned church and told her to stay put and wait for him. He was going to go find an escape vehicle. She waited for a while, but decided instead that she was going to get to the highway and hitchhike back home to Dallas. And that's when the police picked her up. They had also picked up Ralph, who, incidentally, was sent back to prison for another decade. But Clyde Barrow escaped. Emma Parker didn't have the money to be able to bail out her daughter, and the jailer's wife promised to look after her. She would later recall, quote, It was enough to break a mother's heart but I was to learn later that the human heart can stand many, many breakings and still keep right on beating, end quote. Three months. That's how long Bonnie stayed behind bars. She did her best to play the thick-skinned gangster mall and wrote poems full of the movie slang of the time. And ever since, historians have used these poems to paint her as such, even though the rest of her character just doesn't match. What if... She was just a creative, clever girl with time on her hands. But while the jailers didn't treat her like a criminal, allowing her to sit on the lawn or play with their children, they gave her a notebook to write and doodle on, she was not happy with her circumstances. She was feeling a bit abandoned, and her journal reflects it. She had begged Clyde time and time again to give up the criminal life, and now here she was behind bars. Never a dot on her record not one. And, technically, this incident never showed up on her record either. They forgot to take her prints and document her stay. The only reason it's known today is because of her poems that became famous after her death. And, if we're going to go one step further, even up until her death, Bonnie Parker still had a clean record. Her fate was sealed, however, as Clyde Barrow's partner in crime, when on the 25th of March, she supposedly helped rob the Sims Oil Company in Dallas, Texas, even though she was still behind bars in Kaufman. Clyde was charged with his first murder on April 27th of 1932. The newspaper shouted in bold capital letters that Clyde was guilty of murdering a shop owner while his unnamed yellow-haired companion waited in the getaway car. This one accusation was costly because, true or not, if they were caught, it would mean the electric chair. Proof or not, the newspaper said it, and the people believed it. Nell would later say, quote, Newspaper stories sometimes frightened us, but we refused to believe them until we had confirmation. End quote. Turns out, 
Clyde was there, but didn't participate in the robbery or the shootings because the owner's wife recognized him, so he knew to stay away from it. But it got pinned on him anyway. Mel goes on to say, quote, We believed Clyde when he said he didn't do a certain robbery or murder because he admitted so many crimes to us, often crimes the law knew nothing about. Why should he lie to us? What was one robbery more or less? End quote. It would be Clyde that would joke about his rap sheet by saying, quote, If we'd done half that stuff they said we'd done in that paper, we'd be millionaires by now, wouldn't we? End quote. It was around this time that every major crime began to get hung on Clyde Barrow and his nameless yellow-haired mall. They just had that look that readers couldn't get enough of. By the time Bonnie was released from jail on June 17th, she had supposedly already participated in more than a dozen crimes, according to the newspapers and magazines. She went home with her mother, who said she was, quote, soberer, more quiet, and a great deal older than the Bonnie who had left home three months before, end quote. But June hadn't even come to a close before she decided she couldn't be without him, and so she left again with Clyde. He was so upset that she got pinched, and knowing how much it upset her, he did his best to keep her away from the actual crimes. For the bigger heists, and to keep Bonnie safe, he would either keep her at whichever safe house they were at, or he would drop her off at family's homes while he went to work and tell her to listen to the radio to see if the job was a success. Then he'd always come back around to pick her up, and they would be off again. That became their life, driving and robbing small gas stations or grocery stores. Even though she knew what was happening, and they only stole what they needed to live, she did not approve. Her mother would say, quote, Bonnie didn't like it, and she was not in sympathy for that mode of life. Bonnie realized that Clyde faced the chair already because of a charge of murder, which he didn't commit, was on his head, and she didn't believe he had a chance in the world to clear himself of it. If caught, the odds were ten to one that he'd get the chair. She didn't want him caught. All of this is feminine logic of a woman in love and has nothing whatever to do with law and order. Bonnie had become an outlaw at heart because she wanted to be with Clyde. End quote. Clyde had people come and go, and it wasn't long before they were referred to as the Barrow Gang. Raymond Hamilton, W.D. Jones, Ralph Foltz, Henry Methvin, and others would have their day or days with the gang. W.D. Jones was one of the kids in the neighborhood and was about the same age as Clyde's younger brother, L.C. They would hang out from time to time and get in trouble on their own, and I guess he was ready to upgrade from driving a bootlegger's car since the age 11. He would wait around for Clyde to come back to town and would ask if he could go along. Clyde refused him for a while since he was so young. He was only 16, but he was so persistent that Clyde finally gave in when he needed an extra person for the job. If there was anyone in the gang that added to their reputation for being ruthless outlaws, it was Jones. He had an itchy trigger finger and would just as soon kill a man as take him for a joyride, which was Clyde's M.O. If at all possible, he'd say, let's take him, and that was the cue to grab the person or persons and stuff them in the back of the car. Okay, fine, so most of the times it was their car that they were stealing, but... Sometimes he would just do it, just because. 
they would take their hostages a few miles or a few hundred away from where they started, and if it was someone that was after them, they would tie them up just enough to allow them time to escape before they were able to undo their restraints, or otherwise, they would drop them off with some money in order to get them back home safely. Many people who were, uh, treated to this little joyride would talk about how friendly and personable both Bonnie and Clyde were. Bonnie loved chatting with their passengers. On a more serious note, W.D. would add, quote, He kidnapped the police instead of killing them, if he could, but he killed without hesitation when he had to, because he wanted to stay free, end quote. Clyde liked to drive fast, and he could easily maneuver the vehicles to 70 and 80 miles an hour when the standard police cars were struggling to reach 50. He preferred the Ford Flathead V8 because it could speed away before anyone could even think of pursuit. W.D. Jones would say, quote, Clyde really banked on them Fords. They was the fastest and the best, and he knew how to drive them with one foot in the gas tank all the time, end quote. Clyde was also a master of not just speeds, but he was well-versed with paved roads, back roads, and side roads. He was so confident in his knowledge of roadways, he was able to drive at night, without headlights, and know where he was going. Emma Parker would tell others about Clyde's driving skills with just a touch of admiration, I think. She would say, quote, He drove like the devil and had the luck of one. He came to know all the roads in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, New Mexico, and Missouri. Not only the main roads, but all the side roads and the little country lanes. His mind was a photostatic copy of the intricate windings where he could rush in and hide, elude capture, fade into the landscape, and become lost to sight, end quote. But if the time ever came along, and it would, as W.D. warned, and they were unable to outrun whoever was chasing them, Clyde made sure they were well-stocked with the latest and most powerful weapons he could get his hands on. Jeff Gwynn, the author of Go Down Together, would add, quote, they would always be in a position to outshoot them, end quote. He was convinced that he didn't have any other choice. He decided that if they were going to try and kill him, he would have to shoot back. What else was he to do, poor little car thief? Jeff Gwynn adds, quote, from his perspective, he was doing what he had to do, end quote. Bonnie would tease him that he loved his guns so much and would devote hours to cleaning them and naming them. But maybe once upon a time, he only wanted to use them for sport. But these days, he used them to save his life. Even W.D. Jones would remember how much those guns meant to Clyde. He had said in an interview once, quote, He had that sawed-off 16-gauge automatic shotgun along with him all the time. It had a one-inch rubber band he'd cut out of a car tire inner tube attached to the cut-off stock. He'd slip his arm through the band, and when he put his coat on, you'd never know the gun was there. The rubber band would give when he snatched it up to fire. He kept his coat pocket cut out so he could hold the gun barrel next to his hip. It looked just like he had his hand in his pocket. The meanest weapon in our arsenal, W.D. would go on to say, was Clyde's automatic rifle we'd stolen from a National Guard armory. He had cut off part of the barrel and we had three ammo clips welded together so it would shoot 56 times without reloading. Clyde called it his scatter gun. We had a couple of regular automatic rifles and some pistols. 
There were so many guns in the car, it was hard not to show them when we got out at a filling station or tourist court. Clyde always believed in being prepared. He was the quickest man I ever seen. End quote. The automatic machine guns of the time allowed one or two people to do the damage of a whole army. The BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle, soon became Clyde's favorite. It was lightweight, could shoot armor-piercing bullets while being supported by a shoulder strap or braced on the hip. It offered the opportunity of what was referred to as walking fire, allowing the boys to fire and relocate while keeping their attackers a safe distance and doing a ton of damage in the process. Bonnie describes a time when both sides were using such a weapon, which we'll go into right after this quick break. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Clyde Barrow had decided by this point in 1933 that he would not go back to prison, and... As second caveat, he would not be kept away from his family. In his mind, that left one thing, to stay on the run. They were not blind to the fact that it would all have to end, and end in death. In fact, they spoke openly about it. It was decided. They would run until they couldn't run anymore. And funny, the law that was trying to catch them agreed to the same terms. They were no longer interested in bringing the Barrow gang in for questioning or for trial. They had reached the shoot-to-kill status. Now, before I can move forward, I need to back up just a little bit to help things make sense. I had mentioned that both Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were extremely close to their families. Bonnie was the middle child of three siblings and so attached to her mother that sometimes she would need to just be with her. Bonnie would turn to Clyde and say with the slightest pout, quote, I just want to see my mama, honey, end quote. Bonnie would tell her family that Clyde would just swing the car around without a word and head for Texas, no matter where they were. They would pass by one or the other's family's homes and toss an empty bottle out the window into the yard. This was how they told the family that they were in the area. Inside the bottle was a note with a location, not Specifically, but more like a road or a park or a bridge, they just had to trust they were all going to eventually meet up. Whosoever lawn got the bottle was quickly on the phone or sending out messages asking, You want to come over for red beans and cabbage? Everyone knew that code, and it meant bring food for a rare visit. Clyde would love to tease Bonnie about her attachment to her mother, trying to embarrass her in front of everyone. It was noted that he would say, quote, 
It's the only way I can live with her, he would explain. She'll start crying and simply float me out of the car when she wants her mama, so I just put on a bathing suit and drive her in, end quote. Clyde was one of seven children. The family was very poor and were sometimes farmed out to the other family members to help ease the burden for the parents because home for a good bit of their childhood was considered sleeping under a wagon until they could afford a tent. He and his older sister Nell would always be together. They were always sent to families together and it was Nell that Clyde would tell his troubles to. But he had also a close relationship with his older brother Buck, whom we met earlier with his car full of turkeys. Buck was a petty thief, and nowhere near the caliber of Clyde. Buck didn't like guns, and he didn't really like conflict either. I mean, who does, but he would rather run like his brother. But if it came to shooting or giving up, Buck would raise his hands above his head. At this point in our story, somehow Buck had escaped from prison, and while he was pretending to be a free man, he met, fell in love, and married a Miss Blanche Caldwell. And then he told her, oh, by the way, I'm a convicted criminal and I'm on the lam. Nell would remember this of her sister-in-law, quote, Blanche had never been in trouble with the law in her life, and she was deathly afraid of guns, bloodshed, and any sort of outlawry. Newspapers have made Blanche out as a regular gangster's mall, but nothing was even further from the truth. She was a good country girl, timid, shy, and rather quiet, end quote. After hearing this new news and she calmed down, she marched her brand new husband back to the gates of the Texas State Prison and asked to let Buck complete his sentence. They obliged, probably pretty shocked. And he was pardoned after only two years and swore that he was finished with that way of life. Before he settled down to a new job that his sister found for him, he wanted to visit with his brother Clyde. He promised not to get involved with any criminal activity. He just wanted to see his brother so they could meet Blanche. They made arrangements to meet in Arkansas, then move across the Missouri border where Clyde had Blanche rent a cabin for the two couples, oh, and W.D., who didn't seem like he had a home. The cabin tucked in the woods had living space above a garage. No one, not the police, not the Barrow gang, and definitely not Blanche Barrow expected what would happen next. The five were having a pleasant time in each other's company, for the most part. The two brothers had a lot to catch up on. Bonnie loved being stationary for a while, so she had time to make her favorite red beans, slow cooked with some sweet cornbread on the side. They were starting to run low on funds, so while it was still early, Clyde and W.D. set out to look for, um, you know, options. Bonnie was in a negligee and house slippers. Blanche was playing solitaire with her little white pup sleeping at her feet. Buck was dozing on and off on the sofa. Red beans were cooking in the kettle over an open flame. In only a few moments, the two boys came running back upstairs, telling the others that the police were surrounding the cottage. Suddenly, W.D. from inside the garage opened fire, shredding the garage door into splinters in the process. The police returned fire, not really sure who they were facing. Clyde was yelling for everyone to get in the car. He'd tell Bonnie, Get the guns, never mind everything else. Get in the car and lay down, out of sight. End quote. Blanche was screaming and crying, and the dog was barking. Bonnie would recall, quote, The gunfire was coming from everywhere. End quote. Just as she grabbed a gun and was going to fire, she said, quote, 
A slug came through the top of the window and glass shattered all around me. Buck shoved me down, yelling, Get back, for God's sake, get back! I ran, but there was no Blanche to go with me. Frightened to death, she jerked the door open at the first shot and was gone down the stairs, screaming with terror and fear, the little dog behind her. Lead was flying all around us, splattering into the walls, sinking into the doors, shattering the windows. Buck and I got into the car. W.D. had been hit in the head, and just as Clyde started to climb in the front seat, he looked down and saw blood streaming from his chest. The police took cover among the trees. They had nowhere near the firepower of the Barrow Gang, but were able to get a few shots in there that counted. Bonnie continues, quote, The firing had never let up for an instant. It was hell. I'd never lived through such hell. Every minute seemed like it would be our last. Clyde was wounded. W.D.'s head was spouting blood. Blanche was gone, and the shells were spattering and snarling at us. Still firing with one hand, Clyde slipped under the wheel and we roared down the driveway. W.D. was taking care of his side of the car with another machine gun. We found Blanche two blocks away from the house. She was still running and sobbing, her face white as chalk and her eyes popping out of her head with fright. The little dog was in her arms. She got in with us in a sort of dazed, numbed way and sat in the back with me. I had W.D.'s head in my lap and was trying to stop the blood which poured from his wounds, end quote. They left everything behind. Blanche's purse, which contained Buck's pardon and their marriage license, and several rolls of film of the four of them enjoying their vacation, clothes, jewelry, a stash of guns, and Bonnie's red beans cooking on the stove. Ladies and gentlemen, if the Barrow Gang was famous before, they're about to become legendary. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seed, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. After the Joplin, Missouri ambush, Nell would write in her journal, quote, The big manhunt was on. Both my brothers were being tracked down like animals, and neither would be given the slightest chance nor shown the least mercy when caught, end quote. If you have ever seen any photos of Bonnie and Clyde, it probably came from this accidental ambush. The police had no idea that they were so close to capturing the infamous Bonnie and Clyde. They heard a random rifle gunshot and assumed that bootleggers had set up shop in the little cabin, but when the garage door exploded, they did the best they could. Two officers lost their life during that shootout, but the items they left behind would give the police and the public a new insight into the life of Bonnie and Clyde. The photos were developed and splashed across every newspaper and magazine, and stories about the Romeo and Juliet of the criminal world couldn't get written fast enough. Bonnie Parker broke the stereotype for women. She's playfully posing as the movie character of a gangster mall, openly kissing her true love passionately, and using deadly weapons as props. In one of the most publicized photos, she was leaning on the headlamp while her foot was propped up on the bumper of a stolen Ford V8, with a pistol at her hip and a short cigar in her mouth. This is how she was introduced to the world, a look she would never live down. Side note, 
she was so mad when people really thought she smoked cigars, and that the trademark stuck. W.D. would take the blame for her trademark of a cigarette-smoking gangster mall. He would say, quote, Bonnie smokes cigarettes, but that cigarette bit folks like to tell about is phony. I guess I got that started when I gave her my cigar to hold when I was making her picture. I made most of them pictures the law picked up when we fled Joplin, Missouri. I seen a lot of them pictures in the newspapers afterward. Them little poems Bonnie made up made the papers too. She would think up rhymes in her head and put them down on paper when we stopped. Some of them she kept, but she threw a lot of them away. End quote. The impromptu photo shoot was just for fun, meant for her eyes only. But on April 15th, they hit the front page of the Joplin Globe, and then the whole world would know their name and be willing to make up whatever stories they felt the readers wanted to hear. And poor Buck. His dream of becoming an honest man with a home for his wife would never come true. They were able to make it home to visit with family after the whole Joplin affair. Nell would write, quote, I don't think there was ever a visit filled with so much happiness and sorrow. We had lived through a million hells since last we met, and we had no assurance that we would ever behold their faces again in this life. We knew that death was coming eventually, as surely as the sun rose, but we could not say when. End quote. Both mothers were suffering. The nerves of both were ragged. Both were heartbroken, graying, and looking older than their years. Quote, None of us there that day were ever to see Buck and Blanche again till we met over Buck's deathbed in Iowa and visited poor timid little Blanche. Buck had only two more months to live and Bonnie and Clyde had but a year." End quote. This, I'm sorry to say, is the end of part one. While it's true that I could have shaved this story down to fit in one nice neat little episode, but there's so much of this story of Bonnie and Clyde that hasn't been told. And believe me, the second half is just as riveting as the first half. So I hope you'll join me to continue your acquaintance with the Barrel Gang. I'm Elizabeth Bougere, and next week we'll finish off the Bonnie and Clyde you may not have known. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.